Stats Richards on Brooklyn's Radio. I'm joined by a guest in the studio. Uh, it's a gentleman that I met a couple of weeks ago, actually. We were at uh, uh, an event for Macmillan, raising money for Macmillan Charity, uh, with a lovely lady called Michelle, and I think uh, John, who we'll talk to in a moment, knows Michelle, I believe. Uh, we're down in London House, and right at the end of the evening, I've got chatting with my guest today. It's John Glover. And John, I'm going to tell a little story, John, because you said to me, oh, I work for Blueprint. Blueprint Management, I'm sitting there thinking, it's probably a company that go in and sort other companies' problems out. They've got blueprints for it and stuff like that. Yeah. And eventually you said to me, what do, you, what do you do? And what do you do, John? Oh, I manage dodgy artists. Dodgy artists. Dodgy artists. <laughs> I've managed them for a long time. So, let's, so let's, I'm allowed to call them that. You can, you can call them. I'm sure they'll appreciate it from you, sir. So who are these acts that you've looked after over the years? Well, the longest one is Go West. I've managed them for 37 years, which is quite frightening. Uh, then Tony Hadley, yep. which is 20 years. ABC, which is about 15 years, I think. And that's it. I mean, that's uh, we have a relationship with Nick Kershaw, who I'm a huge fan of. So we've got lots of Nick shows, but we don't actually manage Nick. Okay. I'm just a fan of Nick's. So when we were talking over at London House, over a glass of wine that evening, you were telling me how it all started. How did it all begin for you? It was quite bizarre. I was, um, as a young man, I wanted to be an architect. So I studied, went to college. Did very well at college and got what was regarded by my lecturers as being the best job of the year. I was an architect at the BBC. Wow. Back in these days, it's a long time ago now, they had a very, Are very we big... the year? Uh, we couldn't end the year. <laughs> what, what did I start there? I started there in 1963. Okay. Frightening. Um, and they had a very big architects department there. And I was in charge, believe it or not. Uh, this was the, during the Cold War period. And we were building... Uh, bomb-proof radio stations all around the country for wow. when London was destroyed. All under the Official Secrets Act, and I had 112 of these around the country because they were quite convinced London was going to go. Wow. Yes, quite wild. So, and that was to say designing, so you, the, the complete fit out of the... Well, the, basically we, we were given the design by uh, the War Office. Okay. Okay, and we then had to fit them into spaces around the country where we could fit the aerial, the broadcast aerial, somewhere that wasn't going to be destroyed. Interesting. So can you remember where these stations were actually situated? Oh, God, yes. Yes, I mean, there's one under the House of Parliament, which they use for is broadcasting that? now. I yes. didn't know that. Okay. Yes, there is indeed, yeah. <laughs> and there's... Oh, they were, they were all over the country. I mean, literally all over the country. I used to go up to Scotland. You know, literally everywhere. They were yeah. all over the place. Dotted, as I say, 112 of them. And I spent a year at the BBC... And in my year at the BBC, whilst I'd been into a music into music as a young man, I'd never ever thought of it as a career. And I bumped into a band, an amateur band from Birmingham called the Rhythm and Blues Quartet. Right, uh, became a huge fan. And one day, the bass player, whose brother was the lead singer, said to me, yeah, "John, you know, you're obviously not enjoying the BBC. We see you at all our shows everywhere." He said, we're going to turn professional in a month's time because my brother's going to be 15 years old. And we've got this rather strange Jamaican manager who's not in the country much. And is, is there any chance at all you think about packing up the BBC and coming to work with us on the road? Look after our touring, etc. And that was the Spencer Davis group. Wow. Yes. Bizarre. Bizarre. And so I went home to mum, said to mum, look, this is what, yeah, do you mind me doing this? Because she'd put me through college. My dad had died when I was a lot younger. Yeah. And uh, she said, look, if you can get six months leave of absence, do six months. And bizarrely, the BBC gave me six months leave of absence. So off I went with the Spencer Davis group. And of course, they immediately had a hit. 
so that was that i never went back to the bbc that's amazing what a good what a good start so how did you get going so so the, the touring bit i kind of understand but with an artist particularly like spencer davis they, they'd want to get onto or had they got a recording contract already or did well they? the guy that managed them this guy called chris blackwell whose name you might recognize because he was the guy that started island records right right and at this point he managed millie small and he was involved with bob marley involved with selling uh, reggae records out the back of his car around england and the spencer davis group was his first managed band and so when i joined the band i got friendly with him after a while because the spencer davis group didn't stay together that long two three years and when it got to the point where steve winwood the lead singer was going to leave and form traffic chris came to me and said look you know do you want to come and work with me in the office uh, I think I'm going to start a management company. Mm. We're obviously going to be managing Steve's band, Traffic. Maybe you'd like to come in and work with them. And that's what I did. He started then a company called Island Artists, which went on to manage Joe Cocker, Spooky Tooth, John Martin. I mean, you name it. Half of the acts on Island Records we managed. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and you were saying, as, as a lad, you, you like music. What was your main musical influences during Elvis. that period? Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. Yeah, big Elvis Absolutely. fan. Big Elvis fan. Dwayne Eddy fan, bizarrely. Got the Dwayne Eddy vinyl out recently to look at it and see what it was all about. But yeah, Elvis was my big thing. And when did the band, so you say Spencer Davis they, the group, they, they formed from another band by the sound of things, is that right? No, they were. They had another name, the Rhythm and Blues Quartet. They were the okay. same band, but okay. they called themselves the Rhythm and Blues oh, Quartet. And what, what the name changed then? Why did they change the name? I think it was Chris. I think Chris needed a name for the band, and he didn't think the Rhythm and Blues Quartet was kind of spicy enough. Yeah. And bizarrely, it became the Spencer Davis group, and Spencer wasn't really the leader of the band. That's, you know, Steve Wimble was the star of the band. Um so it was an interesting period, but a lot of fun and uh, terribly exciting because in those days, you toured seven days a week. So I toured for two years solid, literally playing every single day we were in a show somewhere. And what sort of size audience would they play to there? Uh, mostly to start with clubs. So yeah. we do the marquee club, places like that. So it would be a few hundred people. But very quickly, they had Keep On Running as a hit. Which is huge. Huge. A few weeks later, somebody helped me. Yeah, it was it was that close together. It was like four weeks later, and they, that was it. So all of a sudden, they became an, uh, a band that played theatres um, before Keep On Running. Literally, just before Keep On Running, we got the support slot on a Rolling Stones tour. Wow! So we had three weeks on the road, road with the Rolling so Stones. So their rise to fame was pretty meteoric. Wasn't oh it? yeah. Really yeah, was yeah. I mean, we did the Stones tour, I think, in like the October. Yeah, and Keep On Running was the number one hit in like March or something the following year. It was that fast. Yeah, it was uh, amazing. Amazing. Now you have picked some music for us today, which is great. Thank you so much for that. We ought to start with the track we've just been talking about. So uh, let's have a quick listen to the track. It is indeed the Spencer Davis Group. Keep on running.
So I'm in the studio and I am talking to John Glover. John has uh, had the opportunity to look after many major artists. John, tell us about that track. Sorry, we're going to take that one down because we don't want to hear that. Uh, it's a brilliant track. I love it, but uh, we'll play that later. So, John, uh, tell us about that track and where it was recorded. Well, this was um, uh, these were in the days of stereo recording, so you only had two tracks to record on. So you would record the whole band in one go. Then you would mix those the whole band onto one track and do whatever overdub you did on the other track. Now, because of these, uh, the fact you only had two tracks, all of the band were playing on that. And myself, Chris Blackwell, who was producing it, and Alec, who was my, my oppo on the road, we ended up doing the clapping on the track because there was nobody else there to clap. And in that session, you used to record four tracks in a three-hour session. We did Keep On Running, Somebody Help Me, uh, Strong Love, and I can't think what the fourth track was now, I don't remember that. But we cut four tracks in that one session, so I'm clapping on all those four tracks. That's amazing. Made me famous. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it did. No, I bet it did. So you were saying, uh, when we were talking off air then, that you, we're going to talk a little bit about the next band that we'll play in a moment or two, but you were saying that, that so many bands, I think, went through the management group. So talk about some of the bands from that period, and talk about some of the competition that you're up against. Well, I guess the next thing we did after the Spencer Davis group was Traffic. And Traffic was very much Steve Winwood's brainchild. Yep. Steve lived in a little cottage down in Berkshire. The whole band lived in the cottage. They created the whole album there. Uh, and they were the first act of Ireland Records that we ever toured America with. We did a tour there. Uh, and literally the week before the tour started, Dave Mason dropped out of the band. So we had one of those situations where we had a six-week tour booked and the bass player dropped out, so they did it as a three-piece. Steve had his... In in the space of the week before the tour, we had his organ adapted so he could play bass with his left hand. (laughs) Totally bizarre. We flew into America, and our first two shows were at the Fillmore West, which is obviously incredibly famous in those days. And um, we were on with The Doors... And Buffalo Springfield, would you believe? Wow. With traffic opening the bill. And when I got off the plane, I drove straight to the venue. The equipment had been delivered there beforehand. And the airline had dropped Steve's organ. Oh, no. So it was standing on the stage, but it was in pieces. So they just left it there. I go up there to try and plug it in, get it all going. It's a dead, a dead piece of equipment. So we rented in an organ, so we had no bass, because it was especially adapted to play bass with his left hand. So we did the entire six-week tour without a bass player, with just the three of them, Chris Wood, Jim Capaldi, and, and Winwood. Um, and that was, the, that was the most extraordinary tour. We did the whole of America, say two weeks at the Fillmore West with these wonderful artists. And then towards the end of the tour, we played a little club in New York. And the night before, we played in Cleveland, and I had been arrested that night of the show. I'd parked outside, parked opposite the theatre in Cleveland, walked across the road to go in the door. And of course, jaywalking in America, which I had never heard of, yep. is an offence. Yep. And parked right outside the door was a police car. Oh, no. And I walked right across in front of them. And they were, I can't tell you how upset they were. The pair of them got out of their car, grabbed me, you know, put me on the bonnet, hands my my back, out with guns. It was... A very, very scary, scary experience. And anyway, once I was in the back of their car in handcuffs, I explained that I was the tour manager of this band, and if I didn't go in there, there would be a problem. The band wouldn't be able to play, etc., etc. 
gave him my passport, and eventually they let me go. A couple of free tickets. <laughs> if only I thought the tickets, they let me go. Wow. So we do that show. I, I then drive to New York on my own, which is, I think, 650 miles. Goodness. So I drive through the night, get there in this little club we're playing in. We do the gig, and at the end of the gig, I am knackered. You know, I've done this whole through the night thing. And Steve said to me, Johnny said, well, I know you're tired, but a friend of mine's just rung me and said, will we go down in the studio yeah. to play on his album? And I said, right, okay. So down we go to the studio, and his friend is Jimi Hendrix. Wow. And Jimi is recording that album, the most famous album in the world, right? In go the boys, and they record Cross Down Traffic and all these, the three tracks they're on on that Jimi Hendrix album, right? Yeah. What, what do I do? I fall asleep in the studio. <laughs> I'm so tired, I miss the entire thing. Really? I wake up the following morning when they finish, not even knowing what they recorded. <laughs> So, yeah, that was one of my bizarre things. I'll bet it is. I'll bet it is. So the next act that we're going to play in a moment or two, which is uh, free. Is this free? Yeah, tell us about how that all came well, about. Well, this is this, again, Chris Blackall, who's, who's a, a genius of music, this man. Uh, I worked with him in a, an office called 155 Oxford Street. That was the original Ireland offices, right? And above us was Peter Grant and Mickey Most. They were literally on the floor above us. And anyway, one day, um, Chris comes in and says, uh, Muff Winwood is working with me as well. By this time, the bass player with the Spencer Dokes group. He's yeah. now also working in the office for Island Records as their head of A&R. Right? He's giving up playing. Comes into Muff and I and said, guys, there's a band playing down the road in a club called Studio 51. I think we should sign them. Do you guys want to come down and see them? So we walk down there. And it's free. Right? These four guys are in this very small studio, probably twice the size of the one we're in now, so very small. And is this Paul Rogers on lead yes. vocals at this stage? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. the original form, okay. Guys in Free. Okay. And they play three songs to us. And if you remember Free, they were quite aggressive on stage. Yeah. Yeah? And looked aggressive. Yeah. Okay, they played full on to us guys, right? In our faces. Paul Rogers was six inches from my nose, you know, singing at me. And it wasn't a great experience. I've got to be truthful. <laughs> it was kind of... Anyway, we walked out. We said hello to them. You know, said goodbye. Walked out. And we're walking back to the Oxford Street office. And um, Chris turned to Muff and said, uh, What do you think, Muff? Muff in his big, you know, Birmingham accent went, well, It's really not my sort of thing, Chris. I can't, you know, it's a bit aggressive. And he said, What do you think? I said, well, I, I did find it rather aggressive, uh, to be honest, Chris. You know, I, I couldn't concentrate on the music. It was such, you know, in your face. Yeah. And I thought that would be that. And the following afternoon, I'm sitting quietly working in the office. Chris's secretary says, you know, can you pop up to Chris's office? Walk in and sitting on the sofa is free. The four of them. And Chris's introduction was, guys, this is John Glover. Um, he runs a management company. So he's going to be looking after your management. Uh, and so you know, he was a bit put off by your performance yesterday. He found it a bit aggressive. I'm thinking, oh, thanks, Chris. That's fantastic. <laughs> Brilliant introduction. So I had kind of a stormy beginning with Free, to be honest. But then it became, you know, uh, they were such a wonderful act. I, I was uh, in love with them. And how long did they stay with you for? Oh, the whole of their career. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. The whole of their career. Yeah, when they broke up the first time, I then got them back together again. We, and they did another album. And when they finally broke up, Paul Kossoff went solo, and I managed Paul, and the other band formed Bad Company. Of course, which again, I love Bad Company. I mean, and that was Paul was in Bad Company for one song. Which was? It never came out. Oh. 
It never came out. So it's Paul Rogers wasn't... No, the, Paul Kossoff. Paul Kossoff, sorry. Paul Kossoff. Was the one that died later, got David Kossoff's son, right? Right. Uh, Rogers was always in Bad Company, but Kossoff was in it for one song, and it never saw the light of day. And do you know where that track is? I know, it's sitting at home. Is it? It's sitting at home in my cupboard. So would that ever On, be on a seven-inch, half-inch vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> half-inch tape. So, and has it aged well? Does it, could it, is it something that would... I've, I have no idea. I haven't played it. I found it again about... Ten years ago, in the cupboard. Uh, but anything that's on tape that is that old, you need to bur- uh, roast in an oven before you can convert it to digital. Is that right? So it would need to be. You know, you, there's a company that does it for you, but you'd have to have it roasted before you, you know, played it again. Amazing. And I've never done that. Uh, so we're going to hear from that track in a moment, which is I, lo- I love the track. But I think the choice of tracks you give me, I'm going, I was pulling out. I haven't played some of quite some. Oh wow, that's really good. Oh, good. Well, Wishing uh, Well was my favourite because it was written about Kossoff yeah. by Paul Rogers. He was such a good vocalist, Paul Rogers, and uh, wishing well from free. We were talking off there. I was saying to you, what was it like setting up booking, like, like gigs in those days? Because I know now from my own son the complexities of a gig. But what, would it, what was it like then, and how did it progress? Well, in those days, it was much, much simpler. In the 60s, when you know, the, the music industry was really exploding, everybody just had very small equipment. So, you know, your Beatles, John Lennon and an amp. Paul McCartney had an amp, etc. It was very small. So with the Spencer Davis group, it was literally that. Two amps and a drum kit. So it's plug in and play, literally. Yeah, plug in and play. Right. We could we could strip the stage in ten minutes. Wow. It was that quick. Um when we toured with the Stones, which was sixty five, I think, sixty four, sixty five, sixty five, um we were on the Spencer Davis group were on immediately before the Stones. There were six acts on the bill mm. and the whole stage will be cleared between each act while the compare announced the act. It was that quick. That's amazing. Yeah. It got more complicated as as the mid-60s got into, like, 68, 69. People started getting into wanting stereo equipment on stage, wanting more keyboards. Not sampling then, but the, the PA systems were getting more complicated. The Hollies, I remember vividly, brought back a wonderful PA system from Scandinavia called an Akaset, right, which we were all envious of. Mm. And it had six channels. So you, know, you, had, you could have a singer, a backing singer, you could mic up the two guitars. It was a big thing. But right. then, because you had to have a mixer yep. all of a sudden. Yep. You know? And we used to just do that on stage. We bought an Akaset for the traffic, and we mixed on stage. Uh, but that wasn't enough for them. They wanted to um, have their PA go 360 around the entire room. And so that would have been the first, I guess. In oh, that. It was. Yeah. We built it. Yeah. Took us six months to have it built, right? Can you remember we, the audience reaction to that when they first heard it? Well, they, they didn't really notice it, I've got to be honest, because oh. it didn't work that well. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to be honest, that's why we only used it once. <laughs> we did a show at Finsbury Park Astoria yeah. with Vanilla Fudge oh, and yeah. Traffic, right? Vanilla yeah. Fudge opened the show, then Traffic went on, and I'm at the side of the stage with this desk, which was six foot long, you know, four foot tall, 
and this was the stereo desk. And then round the room, we only had six speakers. They were quite big, right? They were about the size of a door, hmm. and they were dotted around the room. And in theory, I was mixing the sound, spinning it around the room. And I think after one song, Chris Buckle came back to me and went, can't really hear much out the front, you know? And I went, really? He went, no, go out there. I'll stand by the desk. You go and have a listen. And, you know, eventually I just had to put the vocals through the PA. It just couldn't cope. No. There wasn't enough power there. And it was several years before somebody actually got that part of it together. It, it wasn't us. Somebody much cleverer than me got that together. I mean, when you think of, you look at the shows nowadays, you know, oh, I, I saw John Mayer a couple of weeks ago too, and it's just phenomenal. They yeah. Kit Caboodle, backing tracks that are used. And in some ways, I mean, it's great because you can create a very almost studio quality sound. And yet sometimes when you want it live, you want it live. You want well, the imperfections. You want to hear it as it should it's be It's lovely to hear, you know, an Adele with just her and a piano. Totally. Because she's got a voice that, you know, you can sit and listen to, right? Um... But, yeah, nowadays you go to concerts and the sound is great, generally. Yeah. You, know, you do get a, a great concert. So, no, I, I love it. it. It just is it is complicated, yes, now. It's got more complicated. Totally. So let's move on and talk about some of the artists that uh, you've been managing. Yes. Um, is it, so we were, we were with traffic and stuff like that. Do you want to jump immediately to the likes of Go West? Or well, there's there a connection between? there, so oh, I okay. can, yeah. Go ahead. Bizarrely, Pete Cox, the singer of Go West... Who's got a great in, voice, by the got way. Got a great voice. Right? Fabulous voice. He was originally in a blues band, ah. a four-piece blues band. And because I looked after Free, uh, he got somebody with it. It wasn't him because Pete's not like that. He got somebody in the band to find me, right, to, and we went, I went and met them, saw the band play, loved them, you know. I must admit, I loved his voice. I think the three other guys in the band were good, but they weren't great right. players, right? You know, the guitarist was okay, and I'd been used to Paul Kossoff, who was, you know, a bit different. Yeah. And so it was interesting. And bizarrely, I rang up Chris Blackwell because I was then on my own as a manager at this point. I rang Chris and said, look, there's this band I'm going to take on. Do you want to come and see him? And he came down, which was very nice of him, brought down with him the head of the American Company of Ireland at the time. And um, the band played. And afterwards he went, well, you know, John, if I were you, I'd get rid of the three of them and just keep the singer. The singer's really good. Right. But I don't think much of the others. And I thought, oh, that's a bit strong, Chris. You know, and, and quietly I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So I carried on with the band for a bit. But he was right and I was wrong. And eventually the band broke up. Pete disappeared for a bit. Uh, and about a year later came back with this oppo of his, Richard Drummy, and had this band called Cox and Drummy the two of them all right okay and started you know played me some songs and uh, they had got themselves a publishing deal the two of them right and so they were published by what was called atv music at the time you know it well which bizarrely was owned by michael jackson he bought it <laughs> oh, i didn't know that the, yeah he bought the company okay while they were signed to it right, right. um and yeah so that was cogs and drumming and they um they had a, a I think they did it in a series of threes, their songs. So I had like 12 songs in four batches. Every mm. like few months, I'd get three new songs. And I would troop around the radio stations and, sorry, the record companies, and get refused every time. Every single time. I got absolutely nowhere. The publishers, ATV Music, did the same thing. They would send them out. No reaction at all. And eventually, uh, it was getting to the point where it looked like it was going to fall apart. And I thought, okay, well, there are two songs here that I really, really love. 
And they had a producer who had never done anything before at all, except produce his own band at the time, a guy called Gary Stevenson. Right? And they brought Gary to see me. And I said to him, look, Gary, if, if I put the money up for four days or five days in the studio, I'll find a cheap studio. Can you record these two tracks? I said, mm. particularly one of them. I think there's a track called Call Me, which is the, is the best track. I was wrong. The second track was We Close Our Eyes. And when they got in the studio, they ignored me completely, as you do when you're an artist. And they recalled, <laughs> they recorded We Close Our Eyes first right. and then put all of those um, string things on it. The, uh, oh, and the production qualities in both of those great, But it was this guy that had never produced anything else, right? So he produced those two tracks for me, four days, delivered them to me. I went into ATV Music the following Monday, gave it to the girls there and said, look, these are the two songs I've done. I'm now going to trip around the record companies, but, you know, I'll give you copies of them. And coincidentally, an hour after I'd been in there, a guy from America called Ron Fair, who was the head of A&R of Chrysalis America, yeah. came in for a meeting with them, looking for songs for one of his American acts. And he apparently had been there a year before, and they had played him a couple of songs by Cox and Drummy. Okay. He had this meeting with them. They played different things. And at the end of it, he said, what happened to that Cox and Drummy? You know, and they said, well, we've just got these two tracks. They played him the two tracks. They then gave him my phone number. He rang me. Two hours later, I was in his hotel room in Marble Arch. And an hour later, we'd done the contract for them to sign to Chrysler's Records. And remind us of the year, roughly. Okay, I can tell you exactly when it was. It was 1984. And the music scene had moved on. Uh, they were so of that moment, weren't they? Yes, they, they were. That, those two tracks. Yeah. Yeah, Gary had done them. a remarkable job. And when they signed them at Chrysalis, the bosses at Chrysalis said, uh, okay, Ron, now get us a famous producer to produce these tracks them properly. And Ron went, no, I'm not going to do that. This kid is good. I want him to do the album. And there was a big ruckus in the record company. I wasn't involved in it. I only found out about it. <clears throat> you know, later. But Ron got his way and they allowed Gary Stevenson to produce the album. So in August of 1984, they went in the studio and made that album. And next year, bizarrely, in March, is the 35th anniversary of the release of that first Go West album. And are they celebrating that in any way? Is there anything? Oh, God. Yeah. We're doing 35 shows. Oh, I see. Okay. We start down the road. We're, we're playing with the very first show, number one of 35 is at the Rose Theatre in Kingston, which yeah. is, it, it went on sale last week. I think there's 10 tickets left. As you say, because they've still got huge popularity. Oh, yeah. huge popularity. But then there was, John, there was this um, revival, this, this 80s band revival thing over the last couple of years, really. Maybe it's been going longer, but it, it felt more to me. I kept seeing you know, bands coming together, like you yeah. have Nick Kershaw coming back with Go West and ABCs, and they're all from you, but there are other bands as well. And they, they still, you know, in getting together to do gigs, the compendium of the best artists of those years. Yeah, what's, what's happened? See, bizarrely, the acts never stopped touring. They were just right. as popular. I mean, all of those you've mentioned was touring all the time. What changed was about 10 years ago, somebody came up with the idea of doing a festival. Right. That was the Rewind Festival. That's it. Henley, yep. right? Yep. Yep. That was the first one. And at exactly the same time, a much smaller one was just down the road in Marlow, which is Let's Rock. Okay. They both started at the same time and they immediately became popular. So... Two years later, you have Let's Rock doing four or five around the country. 
They're now doing 14 next year around the country, right? Rewind, three of them, three huge ones. Each one has 20,000 people at it, and it's all 80s acts. That's where the public is, that's what the public are seeing and thinking there's a revival. There isn't a revival, it's just that those things weren't going on before. We were just touring and doing our normal theatres, arenas. It's interesting to finding a new audience, though, because, I mean, I'm thinking, yeah. I work in an ad agency and we've got, you know, quite, you know, everybody from 20 plus upwards, and the amount of people that go to Rewind, yeah. you know, that end. So there's a whole new audience, presumably, that they're just finding. Well, they take, it's funny, when you go to those festivals, you have, in the front, right, the, the, the front three or four thousand people in front of the stage right are the dedicated fans of that band that's on yeah they get there they get as close as they can to see it when you walk back to the sound desk and you look at the arena behind that because there's still another ten thousand people behind the sound desk if you like they're families they're picnicking there with their kids with their youngsters it's interesting so we're getting a different audience now we're getting youngsters liking these things it's yeah, they're, they're great entertainment, those shows. They're worth seeing. I bet they will. Did, did you expect the longevity of the acts? Did you think it would go on like, like it is going on? And there's no end to it by the look of it. I don't think I ever looked that far ahead. In fact, oh. I, I know I didn't. No, I mean, we, you know, I look... Um, I'm the same now as I was 20 years ago. I'm looking at the following year and the year after. I think now probably I'm working slightly more ahead than I was 10 years ago. So, for example... I've already got a 2021 diary with every Saturday in the summer booked for those acts. That's amazing. Yeah. From, but hardly from, surprising. I mean, yeah, but it's great that it does September. live on. It does live on. It's that far ahead. So before we play the track, yes. <coughs> Peter and Richard as personalities, let's talk about them. Well, they're locals here, you see. Oh, are they? Both yeah. local. I didn't yeah, yeah, yeah. They're I both didn't. locals here. Ah. Uh, Richard still lives in Kingston, <coughs> hence the reason we're doing the Rose Theatre in Kingston, because we decided we'd play the nearest theatre to where they wrote the album. And that's where they both lived in the area, right? Um, yeah, they're, they're an interesting couple of characters. I could talk about them now because they're not in the country. <laughs> Pete's in Australia. <laughs> and, it does and Richard's online, flying off today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Richard's literally flying off today because they started touring Australia on Thursday. Yeah. Right? So I could be as rude as I like about them, but I wouldn't be. Um, yeah, I mean... They're part of the family. I say, you seemed so very long. close when I saw you both, you know, at the London House. Yes, because he, was at the, he yeah. came to the dinner as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, we, we, you can't be together that long, 30-odd years, and uh, it's, it's worse than a marriage, you know. It's yeah. longer than a lot of marriages. For sure, for mm. sure. So you, we talked about We Close Our Eyes. Uh, you didn't pick that track today. You I picked did. a different yeah. track of theirs. I did. Tell us why you picked this one. Um... I just love this particular song. You know, it's as simple as that. I mean, it's it's when you sit down and try and pick out which one you want to play, it's it's, it's a tough one. I just love this song. I must admit, because when I went on to look at the number of streams, yeah. I actually thought We Close Our Eyes would be the biggest track, and it's not. This is the biggest this track. Is because of the movie. Right, right, because of course. Because of the movie. Of course. Because we did, you know, there there is a story behind this. Have you got time? For yeah, go story? for it. Go for okay, it. The story behind this one is that um, Ron Fair, the guy that signed them, Okay, left Chrysalis at some point and went to work at EMI in America. So he was our A&R man, the man you discuss what you're recording with. He went and a new man came in. Lovely guy, but wasn't into the band in the same way as, as Ron was. And the boys did a demo of this song called King of Wishful Thinking. I took it in there and he turned it down. Now, contractually, he's not allowed to do that. My contract that I'd done with him was such that they couldn't actually turn down anything I took in there. Right. Right. So 
I, I didn't make a big issue about it. I played him the track and he didn't like it, and that was that, which was a bummer, but there we go. And we did a few more tracks and he didn't like any of those either. So at one point, the boys had been a year without recording anything at all because he just didn't like what we were coming together with. Meanwhile, Ron Fair is now head of A&R of EMI in Los Angeles. And he rang me up one day and he just said, you know, John, what are you doing? I explained the problem I had. And he said, uh, well, is, is there any way at all that I could work with the band in America? You know, if I can't work with them elsewhere because they're with Chrysalis, mm. is there any way I could, I'd get them in America? So I thought about it and I thought, okay, I, I'm going to stick my nose out here. So I went into Chrysalis with the band's lawyer with a new song, played it to the guy and he turned it down and the lawyer said, okay, now, if you read your contract, and you probably haven't, you'll find you can't do that. And you've now done it four times. So I'm giving you notice here and now, the band are leaving Chrysalis. And so we had this discussion, as you could imagine, for a while. And at the end of the discussion, we negotiated it so the band left Chrysalis for America. Right. Not for anywhere else, but just for America. So we then went back to Ron, and Ron went, yeah, this track's great. As a matter of fact, we're just putting the soundtrack together for Disney. Can I put it forward for that? Ba-boom. And there you go. The Disney guys went, can you wish you thinking? Love it. You know? That's amazing. And that's, it became their, probably their biggest single because of the movie. The movie, yeah. last year, that movie was the second most played movie on television worldwide. Last year. That's bizarre. And it came out 30 years ago next year. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> 30 years has gone by quickly, though, I have to say. Uh, Let's play that track for you now. This is Go West, the King of Wishful Thinking. love that track that is beautiful it's brooklyn's radio on a saturday lunchtime it's a very very special program for me today i am loving it uh, go west and the king of wishful thinking where do we go from here who came next in the uh, well i think before we move on there is sure. one bit of king of wishful thinking you need to know about because if you've seen the video and i don't think you have uh it's the only one ever that i've been in i do a little guest spot in it i play a traffic guard um, what, the ones that you know allow, allow people to cross zebra crossings, etc. Right, and it occurred because I was out in Los Angeles when they were doing the video, and Rick rang me one more one afternoon. I think he said, "Listen, John, can you pop down? You know, we we're in the middle of the, the shoot because I wasn't at the shoot. I was with the record company. Can you pop down because we've got a little guest spot? We'd love you to do in the video." And I went, mean, "Oh, really, Rick? That's really sweet, mate. Thank you." So down I go, and they dress me up as a crossing guard with a stop sign okay and there was you know they put a, they put um like a traffic thing on the the floor of the studio and there's a guy there with two zebras okay and um the guy came over to me very quietly and he said are you okay with zebras and i said yeah fine and he said um are you sure and i said what do you mean 
I said, I've never met a zebra. You know, I've seen them in zoos, <laughs> but why would I be upset about, well, frightened about zebras? Yeah. And he said, well, are you not aware what zebras do? And I said, no. And he said, well, if they're freaked by anything or they meet something they don't recognize, they normally cock their leg over it. And I said, all right, okay. So I said, did you tell Pete and Rick this? And he said, yeah, I did. That's the reason I was in the video. They were hoping the bloody zebra was going to cock his leg on me. Oh, how funny. Yes. How funny indeed. What are they like? <laughs> and I still speak to him, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> so let's, um, let's talk about... I was surprised in your... In the order of, of songs, I must admit, looking at the artists that you've managed from Spencer Davis Group through to Free, through to Go West, we talk, we'll talk about Tony Hadley soon, ABCs, etc., etc. You've got Beverly Craven in there. And I yes. saw Beverly uh, with Judy Zook and Julia Fordham last year with a full orchestra, mm. which was absolutely brilliant. I bet it was. Really, yeah. really great. Fantastic sound. And the three together, and the songs between all of them go together so well. Yeah. And vocal, vocally, they're all still so strong, particularly Judy, who's, who's amazing. Um, how do you know Beverly? Well, I managed her from 1989 to 2009, I think, 20... 20 years? Is that 20 years? Mm. Something like that, anyway. Mm. Um, somebody brought in a tape into my office, an engineer I knew, of three songs by this young lady, Beverly Craven. Three or four songs. And I played it. And to be honest, um, I'm really into soul music. And, and, and singers, that I'm, most of the singers I've worked with are, if you like, have a basis in soul. Mm. You know, may not be completely obvious, but that's weird. And Beverly's not like that. So I liked it, but I wasn't blown away. And I took the tape home, a good old tape you pop in the radio, one of those old-fashioned ones, hmm. put it in at home, and my wife, Jules, was listening to it. And at the end of it, she just went, oh, they are so beautiful, those songs. Uh, they, are, they were. I mean, that, I remember that album coming out. I was at school. Yeah. And I remember you know, listening to that one track. And again, it wouldn't have been anything I would have liked, but the quality of the writing, yeah. quality of the production, and her vocal... Well, she'd written them all from her own experiences. Stunning. Every single one of the songs on that first album was written from a personal experience of her. But I think it, you know, it did appeal to women more than men. And, and the, my wife's reaction to it made me listen to it more carefully. I've got to be honest. I, I probably wouldn't have done it. If she hadn't, she gave such a reaction to it. I thought, okay. And I went back in the following day and played it around the office, you know, and then met Beverly. And the great thing about Beverly was. She could just sit at a piano and play you the song, whatever song, right? Mm. And so I had this idea. Muff Winwood, again, the bass player with Spencer Davis Group, at this point was the head of A&R of Sony uh, Records, uh, Epic Records. And so I rang Muff up and I said, listen, Muff, you know, I've got this young lady I'm thinking of managing. Could I bring her in to meet you? And, he, and I knew Muff was the only A&R man in the entire country who had a piano in his office. <laughs> I knew that because I'd been there several times right and so we went in there i introduced him to beverly beverly's not great at meeting people first of all so she's a little bit standoffish and i had said to her before i said listen bev at some point i'm going to get you to play him something how old was she at this stage do you remember no because she looks i mean she looked very young i mean yeah she pro I, I don't know i know she was living beautiful lady in a squat in shepherd's bush wow she left home moved into a squat bizarre and rode a motorbike she came into meetings on a motorbike. It was, she was very different. 
you know. And anyway, during that meeting, there was an opportunity, and I said to Muff, you know, can Bev play you one of the things she's done, one of her new ones? And she, I don't know what, I can't remember now, in honesty, what song it was. And he played, she played it for him. And you could see his face. And, and, you know, the following day he rang me and he said, I'd like to sign her. I think she's fantastic. And we did exactly the same with all of the senior people at Sony. He booked a studio, got them all down before we'd recorded a single thing for them. And she played them three songs live. And it just blew them all away. And so, and that album, album that, that, and it is a true album because it's not a weak track on it's that album. On it's it. a beautiful no. album, yeah, from, and, and that's why I guess it's it's gone through the test of time. I know when I was at the concert again, we talk about um, we talk about the fact that you were saying about the audiences up front. You get those that love the band, and then as you get further back in the audience, yeah. you get the families. What was quite interesting in in watching Judy with Julia and Beverly was the mum singing but their daughters now knew more of the lyrics than the mums did yeah which i thought again so there you go next generation coming through in the same way as it keeps life carol king and the same as it keeps life Joni mitchell these songs are going to go on and on which is brilliant well, she's, she's an extraordinary writer she does always write from experience and i have a vivid memory of, of uh, one of the last shows i went to of hers which was um in aylesbury i think it was yeah and um she played songs from her new album and she just split up with her husband. Ah. And they were about him. God and you can dear tell. me, if, you been tell. The, if you were him in the audience, <laughs> it was frightening the life out of you. Well, it's very Dallas, isn't it? Really, it is. Yeah. Beverly Craven. Promise me from a great album. I say I remember playing that in my school days, uh, end of school days around here in Fulbrook School. Uh, and as you said, it was real, really popular with the female audience. But I have to say, the tracks on there still "Woman to Woman" is a track, amazing track, mm. utterly brilliant track. So that's Beverly. Beautiful uh, songs. Great to have them, as I said, as a revival with Judy and with Julia Fordham as well. I don't know if they'll do it again. I guess they might do because it was so successful. I think. Yeah, I think I got the feeling that they really enjoyed it. Yeah, I saw them a couple of times on TV talking about it, and knowing Beverly well, I mean Beverly's not the sort that you know pretends. And I did get the feeling she really enjoyed it. Yeah, and of course I think, regrettably, they had this terrible connection with cancer. They, they do. They've got Which the commonality, haven't they? So yeah. uh, bless them, bless them. I know Beverly's been through a lot, so let's hope to her. she's doing well. As is Judy and is uh, Julia as well. Absolutely. So I mean, this the the entourage of acts that you've managed over the years has been phenomenal. We haven't yet talked about an, another favourite band of mine from the eighties, which were ABC and Martin Fry. ABC. It's interesting because my eldest son Matt works with me and has done for thirty years, right and. Matt was the one that kind of brought ABC in. He'd, he'd, we'd done lots of shows with one or other of our acts with Martin, and uh, Martin was looking for somebody to manage him. He hadn't had a manager for a while, and we got involved in it, and the first thing we did with him 
was an album called Traffic, which wasn't a big album, but is a great album with some really, really great songs on it. Uh, so that was where we started, and, it, and that was a lot of fun. And then we had a call from, there's a company called SJM, that are very big promoters. The guy that um, is one of the owners is a guy called Simon Moran. And he rang Matt and I one day and just said, uh, guys, have you ever thought about doing an orchestral show with ABC? Because mm. there are strings, obviously, on most of the ABC songs, mm-hmm. even if they're imitation strings there's certainly strings on there somewhere um and bizarrely we had just done some shows in canada we'd done four with an orchestra in canada that had literally rung up and asked if martin would abc would come over and perform with them and we did four shows over there they orchestrated all the parts you know we didn't have to do any orchestrations they took the records we gave them the set we wanted to play and they put together all the parts of the orchestra so anyway, Simon said to us, have you ever done it? We had said we had once. He said, I'd love to do the Albert Hall with ABC. And ABC yeah. had never sold out the Albert Hall or indeed played there at this point in time. And I must admit, I was, I said, Simon, are you sure, mate? You know, lovely idea. But, you know, are we going to sell out the Albert Hall? And he went, yeah, absolutely. And because he was spot on. And Martin um, went, okay, I'm not doing this unless I can have Anne Dudley, who arranged the original Lexicon Love album. Yeah come in and rearrange all the tracks so that, and, and to look after the orchestra. And so that's what we did. And it was a phenomenal success. And he's been doing it ever since. I mean, he doesn't exclusively do with an orchestra, but if you get the chance, I mean, he's not doing one with orchestra for the next year, but he will be the following year, you should go and see it. Because if you're, if you're a fan of ABC music, seeing it with a full 40-piece orchestra behind it is absolutely amazing. And Martin prefers that himself. That's his... He loves it. He loves it. Yeah, he loves it. He loves the... Because on stage, difficult to explain to anybody, if you've been lucky enough to have been a sound check, you know, with an orchestra, so you've been in the room and you're the only one there, apart from the orchestra, the sound of that orchestra to you personally is an amazing experience. I can't tell you. The, The very first time I did it, I just stood there in awe of the whole thing. Yeah, Martin... I think it's the same when he's on stage and he's got that sound behind him doing the songs he's familiar with, but doing them with that lot, you know, playing it with him. It's a fantastic experience. He loves it. Absolutely Mm. loves it. Very good. I was going to ask you, actually, I mean, the UK market, obviously, it's a phenomenal market. It always has been musically. I mean, it's a fantastic export, Mm. one of the best exports that we have. Um, But sometimes bands grow in other markets even more so than the UK market, which is actually quite a small market in itself. Have any of these guys that you've got and girls that you're still working with, are are there places that they go to now where they are still really recognised, really mobbed? Is is the popularity even bigger elsewhere? Uh, Well, yes, it is. It's bizarre. ABC have always been huge in America. Right. And ever since we took Martin on, so as I say, for 20 years, most summers he's out in America playing. I mean, they are big over there. Australia, Go West, Tony, ABC, all big. In Aust- They've all toured there together. Have they? they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. South Africa, you know, in Europe, all over Europe. South America. We, I, I've done a couple of things in South America, the most notable being with dear old Tony Hadley. We did a tour down there with Alice Cooper. Tony Hadley. That's a strange mix. Oh, I tell what a you, blend. It was a strange show <laughs> all round. But uh, and and who's the singer from Yes? John oh, Anderson. Yeah, John Anderson, yeah. So that was the bill. Wow. Alice Cooper, John Anderson, Tony Hadley with an orchestra 
and with a South American choir. So I suppose that would bring it all together if they're all working with an orchestra, because Alice Cooper's going to sound entirely different. <laughs> Alice, it was wild. It was the wild. That was probably the wildest tour I've ever been on, I've got to say. Two weeks in South America, we played, what have we played? Brazil, two or three shows, uh, Argentina, Chile. And Alice Cooper is, I love Alice Cooper. He's wild. He's wild. The man is up at eight o'clock in the morning playing golf. Yeah. He played against the pros in each country we played it, the international pros, and beat them, right? In Brazil, <laughs> Argentina. He'd wander off looking like a golfer, not looking like Alice Cooper. He'd come back in the afternoon, and he, each time he'd have beaten the local golfers, right? That's amazing. And then we get down to the show, and 45 minutes before Alice Cooper goes on the show, his dressing room door is locked. There's a TV screen on there, and he has Kung Fu films going on, right? Or films like that and he has 45 minutes of looking at those to get himself in the mood to psych up to psych up to Literally. be Alice Cooper wow. and there, out he comes on goes to make up as a different guy amazing. amazing it's wild now you started to talk of the brilliant Tony Hadley there we haven't yes. talked about Tony yet at all let's, let's go to Tony when did you pick Tony up as an artist it was, it's, it's a funny story again we had, our office at the time was in Lots Road and um, Tony rang uh, I knew Tony because Tony and Spandau were on Chrysalis Records, the same label as Go West. So right. I didn't know him well, but I'd met him with Go West back in the 80s. <clears throat> anyway, he rang up one day. He'd been a solo artist for 10 years at that point, I think. Oh, had he? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, don't forget, Spandau broke up in 1990. Yeah, long time ago. Two brothers went sure. off and became film stars and dumped the other three. But there we are, that's another story. Um, so Tony rang and just said, you know, can I pop in and see you? Uh, you know, I'd like to talk to you about management. And uh, Matt is sitting opposite me across the thing. And I said, yeah, okay, Tone, great, love to. He said, I'll pop in at lunchtime, I'll buy you lunch. And I said, okay, great. Put the phone down. And man, Matt looked at me and went, Dad, we're not taking on another old act. Let's get a new act. Tone's even older than Go West. You know, we don't want another old act. And I went, oh, all right, Matt, look, I know him. I went, we're only having lunch with him. So we went out for lunch. <laughs> Tone bought lunch, and, and Tone is the nicest person he's I've ever worked with. He's lovely, just as a really. He's really just a, he's a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah, we had lunch. You know, he paid for it. Off he went. You know, I'll give you, I'll give you a call. And we went back in the office, and then Matt looked at me and went, "I want to look after Tony Hadley." I went, "All right, hold on." Two hours ago, he was an old fart. I oh, know we should take on to so you know we did and Matt has been very close to Tone ever since that day. Oh, he loves story. loves working with him. That's a lovely Absolutely story. Loves working with him. And he's still I mean he's still so good, isn't he? He's I mean, the hardest working act we've ever had. Is he? Yes. Oh, by miles. I can't tell you. There, I've never met an act that works as hard as him. That's amazing. He's got two radio shows has on he? air. Yes, okay. he has a radio show on Absolute Eighties every Saturday night. Okay, and he has a show on Sunday mornings on BBC Three Counties. Wow. He does those each week. <laughs> and he still does a heck of a lot of touring. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think when we met at London House, you said he'd just gone to a cruise ship. He had just gone on a four-day cruise out of Southampton, uh, which, again, he's done a couple of cruises. And if anybody's been on that cruise that you speak to, they'll tell you that everybody on that boat meets Tony Hadley. Wow. Because he makes a point of going... If you go on these cruise ships, there's always like 10 bars on there, right? All over the place. Sure. Tone likes the odd glass of beer. And each night after a show, he'll wander in there for a drink. And he'll have his picture taken with everybody on the boat. There, I bet there was nobody on that cruise that came back without a picture of themselves with Tony. And these are big 
ships, aren't there? Three thousand five hundred people. Probably, it's a big enough audience. Isn't oh god, it? yeah, yeah. That's it's quite huge. amazing. Yeah. So, you, so you picked Tony up how long ago? Remind me again. Twenty so years. Twenty ago. years you've been together. Twenty years, which is quite amazing. It's, it's extraordinary. And Tony I mean, sort of moved into that. You, you were talking about Martin Fry moving into the, the big band type sound. I mean, that must suit Tony as well, doesn't it? Well, Tony, Tony started. Um, how long ago was this? Now about fifteen years ago, I think. He decided he wanted to make a big band album. He's always wanted to. Mm. Big fan of Frank Sinatra, and he went off himself without us been involved got hold of somebody and paid for the recording of a, of a big band album because mm. he wanted to do it and uh, and then came in with it one day went, you know, I've done this myself went, right okay where was this part of the plan tone I didn't think we were doing this and you know it was a really good album so we did a year touring with a big band he loved it it was a lot of fun um, and then he came to see Martin ABC at the Royal Albert Hall with the orchestra loved it and, and just afterwards went, I'd love to do that. That mm. was so great. And bizarrely, the same promoter, Simon Moran, rang us a few months later and said, do you want to do it with Tone? And I went, absolutely. Tone is desperate to do it. Mm. And so he does that quite often now with the orchestra. He, he again, like Martin, loves the experience. Would he release tracks in that style now? Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. you can just imagine him being the look, the feel yeah. of Tony Hadley would just fit so well with it. Well, we're, we're, where we are at the moment, um, next October, October 2020, marks Tony's 40 years in the music business. Right. It's 40 years ago that month that he signed his record deal with Chrysalis Records with Spanner Valley. So he has decided that he's going to go out and do 40 shows, one for each year. And so we start that next October. And some of those will be with an orchestra. Some of them will be with a swing band, because he loves that as well. Does he? Yeah. Yeah. So those 40 shows are going to be very varied. Can you remember where they... all over the place. Oh, was, oh okay. So oh, he's starting in the UK. place... I tell you what, nobody will ever get a ticket for it. He's decided he wants to play in the first pub he ever played in before he was in Spandau, which is a little pub in Islington. I think... I mean, you know, forgive me. I think it's called the Hope and Anchor, but I could be wrong. But it's a little pub in Islington. He said, I want to do the first show there, John. Right. So I rang up whoever run, owns it now, right? It holds 80 people. And I went, all right. <laughs> Can it expand? No, it's 80 people. And that's on a sellout, so completely full. And it has to be on our small stage. Right. And Tone's got, yeah, that's what I want to do. So we start the 40-show tour at that pub. And when is that, do you know? <laughs> yeah, October next year. October next year. Yeah. So, so Frightening. Amazing. Heaven knows what we do that night. How far ahead does it get booked? Uh, we have um, more or less the whole summer of 2021 confirmed already. That far, it's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. He's off on another cruise. He's off. When is he? He's off out of uh, Miami for a cruise around the Virgin Islands. So in March next year. That's amazing. That's <laughs> amazing. It's absolutely brilliant. Now the track that you've chosen here, it's not one that I actually knew that well. No, but it's really good. Well, this is you know this is his most recent album, and um, it's an album we spent a lot of time putting together. Most of the songs on it he has co-written or been involved in in some way, um, and he he did a, a really good job on this album. And funny enough, Gary Stevenson produced it. That good old Gary from back in the Go West days. We're going to play it for you in just a second. I've got one. Uh, this is going to be has to be somebody that you know here that's uh, emailed into us, uh, who says hi, John. Are you ever 
in Block Capital is going to release your autobiography that you've been writing for the past 25 years. <laughs> Lo- Love, Eamon. <laughs> uh, right, from, yeah, uh, the famous Eamon autobiography. <laughs> I've started one a few times. Um, I just get, I get sidetracked by... Um, I started it... <laughs> You're going to have to do it, by the way. I, th- <laughs> I think it would be an amazing book. There was, a, there was a point back in 2001, I think it was, that we took on Victoria Beckham when she went solo. We looked after her for her solo career, for her solo album and her singles. How, how did that go? <laughs> it's an interesting story, quite a long one. <laughs> okay, and, we'll do and, that after. And you're, you're off tomorrow. <laughs> you're not off the show in a couple of hours, aren't you? I'm going to have time for that one. Um, but, you know, that was after it finished. Uh, after I finished managing her, I had a call from the News of the World in those days, from yeah. the editor, and he said to me, um, you ever thought about writing autobiography? And I said, no. So he said, okay, well, if you'd, do you want a hand? I could find you a writer that could write it, ghostwrite it for you. And I went, no, it's not something that's ever been on my agenda. And he said, okay. He said, okay, well, look, John, if you do, call me. He said, there's bound to be a chapter in there about the Beckhams. And I will pay you this much money for that chapter. Wow. And I went, really? And he went, yes. And I went, I don't think I'd be a, you know, a very popular manager if I wrote a book about my artist. I put the phone down, never thought any more about it. And, and then I went home and said to Matt and to Jules, you know, told them the story. And they went, how much did he offer you? And I told them and they went, you maybe should think about writing an autobiography. <laughs> so I did vaguely start on a tour. I was with Go West in Australia. Uh, for a long tour and we happened to have three days off in sydney and it was lovely weather i went and sat in sydney park on my own and wrote some stuff you know about the early days so i came back with i don't know a few chapters done uh but that's you know as far as it went for a while until three years ago we took on steven seagal for a year which was also quite an interesting period of time and the stories about Steven Seagal would fill a few chapters. So I did think, okay, and I did a bit more work on it. So I'm probably halfway through, maybe, whether it'll ever get finished. You've got to get it done. You've got to get it done. (laughs) Eamon, thank you for the email. Uh, I sidetracked you because we didn't play the track from Tony. It's my fault because you were currently... So let's just quickly play the, uh, the track from Tony Hadley. Lately, everything's changed We seem closer, like you care more Lately, I feel the I've got a real good feeling Tonight's the night uh, Tony Hadley, a song called Tonight Belongs to Us We've been talking about the amazing acts uh, that John has managed over the years, from Free to Go West, ABCs, uh, Tony Hadley. You, you managed Nick Kershaw for a little while, I believe. We did. I, I'm a big Nick Kershaw fan, big Nick Kershaw fan. And um, he just approached Matt at one of the shows, I think one of the Let's Rock shows. And he and his wife were there, and she's lovely. And she'd been managing him for quite a while. And I think she'd had a couple of glasses of wine and she said to Matt listen Matt you know I'm his wife it's driving me mad being his manager as well would you guys take him on you know could you take him on my hands for a bit and Matt rang me and I just went look I'm the biggest fan and so we looked after him for three four years uh, and it was a lot a lot of fun I've got to say 
Uh, I wish he was still doing it, but he's decided to do something a bit different now, and I'm not quite sure what he's, he's got planned. He's one of those characters that um, he decides on something, and it may not be logical, it may not be commercial, but at the end of it, it's always exciting. He's a great star, great writer. And go back to ABC again, just thinking of the Lexicon Love. So, so you weren't with Matt Martin for um, the original Lexicon of Love, but no. then they did the follow-up. Second, yeah, we had this. Um, we I said we did this album, Traffic, which was the first one we did with him, yeah. Right? And then, um, uh, Universal Records, who own most of the back catalogue of ABC, somebody there was putting together a box set of, uh, of ABC, and he rang me and we were chatting about it. And he said, uh, you know, I, I love that album you did with Martin, you know, Traffic. He said, Has he got any other plans to do another album? And I said, Well. I don't think he's got a plan. I said, but bizarrely, yesterday he gave me a CD, uh, which is in my car. And he said, what's on it? I said, I have no idea. I haven't played it. I said, you know, it's appalling. He gave it to me. But as he's not talked about making a record, I have to say I put it in the side pocket. And this guy said, oh, right, okay. And, and this character you know, works at Universal, but is a bit of a fan of ABCs. So the following day, I get in the car and I put it on and listen to these tracks. And there's like eight tracks on there. And they were brilliant. You know, I wasn't expecting this. I just went, wow. So I rang Martin. I went, where did these come from? He went, I've been, you know, putting them together over the years. I said, right, so what about an album? I hadn't really thought about an album. I said, okay. And he said, actually, John, I'm not, you know, we did that independent album, Traffic, which was great. He said, but it's not quite the same as working with Universal. Hmm. And he said, I'm kind of used to working with a big company. So I don't think I'd make another album unless I had a big company behind me. I said, okay, fair enough. So I thought, sod it. Oh, sorry. I thought, blast. I'll ring Universal. <laughs> so I, I rang Universal, <laughs> right, and spoke to the guy there at Rand Virgin and told him what I'd heard. And he said, uh, right. So he said, would Martin, would Martin make another ABC album? I said, well, I think so. So I said, would you be interested? I said, because it seems like he wants to be with, you know, company like you. Right. And he said, what would he call it? And I said, what is it you want him to call it? <laughs> so let's, let's, you know, he said, if he called it Lexi and Love 2, I'd put it out. I said, okay. I said, but you haven't heard it. He said, if he called it Lexi and Love 2, I'd put it out. And I went, okay, <laughs> fine. I think I get that bit. So I rang Martin and had a very, very frank conversation with Martin and said, look, Martin, you know, they haven't asked to hear a single track, okay? Uh, but they do want to put out Lexi and Love 2. And um, so Martin made it. With Gary Stevenson again, yeah, you know, bizarrely. I remember he, it coming out. Yeah. Like and uh, as he made it, it just got better and better and better. And Dudley did all the arrangements. And there was a point where Anne had booked a studio to put the full orchestras on all the tracks, right? So we, we more or less finished the album. Yeah. And uh, Simon Moran rang up, you know, promoter Simon, who's been doing it all the time. He's a fan. And I just said, look, we're doing this tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, Do you want to come down? I didn't think to ask you, Simon. He said, oh, I'd love to. Would you mind? I said, no, mate. You know, I'd love you to hear it, you know, because he genuinely is an ABC fan. So fine, he's coming down. And I thought, you know, it's worth a chance, John. So I rang Virgin. I said, Ted, guy who runs it. I said, uh, got Simon Moran coming down tomorrow to hear us put the orchestra on. Do you want to come? And he knows Simon really, really well. And he went, yeah, actually, I would like to come. I said, okay, great, you come. So that was it. About half an hour later, um, his secretary rings back and said, um, Ted said, could he bring the head of marketing and the head of promotion with him? 
And I said, yeah, if that's what you'd like to do. Then I had to break the news to Martin that I'd got four guests coming. Right. Which didn't exactly go down a storm, but there we are. So they came down, and they came down. We'd arranged it timing-wise, so we had finished the four, what I think are the four best tracks, right? Um, so that we could, you know, they could listen to the playback of those. And they listened to the playback of those, and then Ted, the, the president of Virgin, went, have you got any of the others done? And we and Gary said, um, well, we've got all of them done, but I haven't mixed them yet. So he said, could you do a rough mix now? And Gary looked at Martin, and Martin kind of said, okay. And so they did. So you know, Gary played back to these guys the whole album. And at the end of it, Ted turned to his marketing guy and said, what do you think? And he said, I've got a list of the first three singles. He said, let's see if they're the same as mine. Yeah. And they, you know, they, they were, all three of them had picked out the first three singles. And they went, okay, John, we, we want this, you know, big time. And they did a great job on it. I mean, it, it went in the charts first week at number five, which was fantastic. And uh, great album. Great album, indeed. Great album. Uh, we ought to hear something from ABC. Tell us about the track that you've chosen. Which one have I chosen? Ah, uh, well, if you don't know that, I'm going to know. It's Flames, <laughs> Flames of Desire, John. Flames of Desire, which I think was the second single if I'm not mistaken. And again, great song. You know, he wrote it with a couple of guys, and it's just a great song, I think. It's a brilliant song. Uh, The Flames of Desire, ABC, from the Lexicon of Love 2. just saying off air and dudley talk about Anne dudley dudley and the composition now that's amazing she's just she's just the most wonderful arranger I, i'd not met her until martin introduced me to her when he wanted to do lexicon two uh, i'd never met I, I i knew of her but that was all working with her she's the most wonderful arranger and when you're in the studio with her the way she works with an orchestra uh, there is such a feeling for the players to her it's amazing i mean it's, it's a you know, I'm very lucky I get to be in that place to, to witness that because nobody else does apart from Martin and the producer. And it's it's fantastic to see. She's a wonderful arranger. And she's, I'm not mistaken, she wrote one of the songs on that. Um, oh, did she? Too. Yeah, with I Martin. Didn't know okay. Yeah. So going back to Tony, I mean, and, and you know, we met, funny enough, at a charitable event. Yes. But, but I believe Tony does quite a lot for charity as well, doesn't he? Tony, well, bizarrely, you know, Tony's the one that started this, but Tony Martin and Richard from Go West do things together for charity. They have done uh, three treks in different parts of the world for action medical research together. And the first one we did was the Lost World in South America where we took 30 fans with us. Oh, wow. And climbed to the top of the Lost World with them. And that was just the most amazing experience. And then we went to Costa Rica and we walked from the pacific coast of costa rica to the atlantic coast i think we took 60 fans with us that time i can't remember piles of them 
and then we did the Namibian desert. We went Goodness. across the Namibian desert to the skeleton coast. That was the toughest of the whole lot. Wild. And oh no, we did another one. We did Cambodia. We went to Angkor Wat through the jungle. Um, and you know, the guys went out there and did them. It's great. And we raised each time in excess of a hundred thousand pounds. That's amazing. It's great. It's amazing. It's really good. Yeah. And you were saying that uh, Tony's busy in January with. Tony's busy. Currently, he's um, uh, he's in Germany tomorrow, I think it is, and then Australia next week for a week's promotion because he's out there touring in, in March. <clears throat> he then does, he comes back into England briefly in December and does three Let's Rock winter shows. So these are 80s shows, right, indoors. Uh, he does Wembley on December 13th, and that's with uh, Jimmy Somerville, Mark Armand, Nick Kershaw, like 14 acts, I think, and Tone's decided. Is that sold out, by the way? That one, or is it still tickets available? It's not sold out yet. Yeah, it will, it will be, I'm sure, yeah. I was just thinking of my wife. She, oh, okay. All those acts, she, she absolutely she does. <laughs> well, what Tone's decided, in his wisdom, I don't think he's told anybody else yet, he's took his own band into the rehearsal room last week and rehearsed six Christmas songs. Oh, has he? So he's decided he's going to get everybody involved in doing some Christmas songs. Oh, so that's that, cool. That could be quite entertaining. But then in January... He does a thing, um, there's an organisation called The Young Voices. He did it this year in January and February. I had never heard of it until somebody rang up and said, what do you consider being a guest on this? And I went, okay, can you explain it to me? And they suggest we work with school choirs all around the country. We send them uh, a list of songs to learn and we send them a backing track of ones they won't know, if you like. Hmm. And the school choir learn the songs. Then they get together and... For example, in January, we're doing six nights at the O2. The O2 holds 18,000 people. We're doing six nights there. They'll all be sold out. The choir each night will be 8,000 kids, and it will be a different choir each day. We do 25 of these arenas around the country, different choir each day. The smallest choir, I think, in Sheffield is (laughs) 6,500. The rest are 8,000. And they learn at their schools with their music teachers, the songs. Yeah. They turn up and they then work for two hours in the afternoon going through these with the the director. Right? And there's always two or three guests on. Tony went on last year and did, I don't know, three or four songs. Absolutely loved it. They finished with, God, what was the big musical last year? Um, not Frozen, no. No, not no. Frozen. The one, um, oh God, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, whatever it was, they finished with that. Next year, because Queen has been such a big thing, sure, they're finishing with a Bohemian Rhapsody thing. Wow. With the singers and the choirs all singing together. And, yeah, we're doing 25 of them in January. Because I mean, he, he said to me it was the most wonderful experience he'd had. When he went to the first one l- this year in Sheffield, to the rehearsal, he said he stood on the stage and there were these 6,500 kids around him singing his song with him. And he just said, I- I've never had an experience like it, John. Oh, but that's brilliant. The most wonderful experience. And the audience, the tickets are only sold to the kids' parents. And that feels So it. the fans can't get it. No, <laughs> it's only the kids' parents in the yeah. audience. And I- they're just so excited by it. Yeah. It's a wonderful experience. So do you go to that as well? Will you go I went it? to four of them last year. Right. Because I just wanted to, to be honest. I just, I sat through two of the rehearsals in its entirety from one o'clock till four o'clock i think at, at the o2 i sat through two of those because it was just so exciting watching these kids I'll it was bet. wonderful 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 experience and so for the first time ever he's going back and doing it again no, they've not had an act 
do it twice. He goes back in January and does all 25 of them again and loves it. Good on him. Yeah, good on, good him. on him. So we were talking a bit when we first met, and we've talked a bit, as also today, about the changing scene, the music industry, because, mm. I mean, you know, in our generations, we've been through vinyls, we've been through cassettes, we've been through CDs, we've been through downloads, now we're doing streaming. Is it? Do you think it's better? How's it, in your mind, how has the music industry progressed? Wow. All those systems you mentioned, I think I've got the players at home, you know, the DAD <laughs> player, whatever they were, they're all sitting in the office somewhere. None of yeah. them got any use anymore, but they're sure. all sitting there. Um, well, it's very different for me now. I, I'm, uh, I don't find it as easy to communicate with the youngsters in the record companies now. Um, if I go into a record company with a new artist, which I, I have recently, almost the first question they'll ask me is, how many likes have they got on Facebook? How many followers have they got on Twitter? And it's, that's almost the first question. If, in fact, it is the first question. If you've got a substantial amount, and we're talking hundreds of thousands, yeah. not 50,000, that's irrelevant. You sure. know, that's just not what we're talking about. If you've got hundreds of thousands, then we start a conversation. If you haven't got any, then the conversation almost finishes straight away. It's very weird. And that is kind of the problem, isn't it? It is a complete social media package now rather than about the music. Yes. Which, you know, uh, it could be. I mean, it'd be very interesting to think into the future and see, you know, breaking new bands. You're going to get some come through. But when you look at, you know, the top streaming artists, they are the not the established, but Mm. they're all out there. You know, to your point, they've all got to have zillions of followers before you're still going to get some you know artists with fabulous voices and great songs that are going to come through but what you don't see behind the scenes is how tough it is to get that started i mean adele okay i remember sitting watching um that award show where she came on the guy singing at the piano and she just sang that one song and blew every the brit awards wasn't it she blew everybody away but i bet she was going for a long time before she did that but probably the last artist actually when she bought out 25 i mean she said i'm not going to pay on stream i refuse streaming i'm doing cd first yeah i can't think of an artist that's done that since good honor and i wonder if adele when she releases the next which is now actually uh yeah she probably couldn't do the same thing even at her level you know to ignore streaming now would be you know, or to delay postpone streaming maybe for her it would work because of you know it might the, and the record company is. might not let her do that yeah i mean you know it's because they're they're set up in such a way now they might not let her do that yeah it's um so as you say hard to break an artist but you're still trying well you know i i've kind of made a decision not to attempt to look after a new artist a while ago because i tried a couple of things that i really really liked and got absolutely nowhere. Right. And then, I know I'm going to mention him again now, good old Gary Stevenson rang me up one day and said, look, John, I know you're not looking for a new act, but I've just done some work with this girl, some mates of mine have brought in this girl singer, and we've done some tracks, can I send you one? And I said, oh, Gary, you know, all right, mate, send it to me, but, you know, really, I think I'm too old to start this again. I'm not sure I can cope with working with record companies in the way they work nowadays. So he sent me down this track, and, you know, sucker for punishment. I just think this woman has the most beautiful voice. I mean, it just, the very minute I put this on, it blew me away. It didn't do the same to everybody else, I've got to admit. Mm-hmm. But for me, her voice just blew me apart. And 
the track that you know hopefully you're going to play isn't finished it's a demo okay. of of one of her songs it's it's close to being finished it still needs a bit of work but for me the voice in there is just, and she's an extraordinary woman i've only met her once i mean i don't manage her at this point right i'd like to but i, I don't manage her at this point i met her once she's born in alaska she survives because she doesn't have a job she survives because she tours as a stand-up comedian wow and in her spare time, she busks as an opera singer. Amazing. And I, Amazing. I looked on our website and watched her busking outside the Edinburgh Festival. And her voice was just like unbelievable. So this track isn't out yet. This, oh, no, it's nowhere yet. It's not finished track. yet. But okay. You know, uh, I think it shows what she's like. Tell us the lady's name and the name of the track. Well, it's, her name is Chelsea Hart. Chelsea Hart. If you Google her, it's an interesting situation because you get this stand-up comedian this opera singer uh you probably won't hear this if you google it because i don't think it's up on her site uh but i'd say for me she just has the most beautiful voice and this song you know i don't think it's finished this song but for me it's a bit special let's have a listen john chelsea hart this night baby if we had more time i'd get to know you better Make a girl go crazy when you barely even A lady called Chelsea Hart, Chelsea Hart, and a song called This Night. It's not out yet, uh, but keep an eye out. I'm sure it'll be coming out fairly shortly. Uh, John, I have to say, thank you so much for coming in today. It has been absolutely fascinating hearing all the stories. It's been a great pleasure. It's a a fascinating station. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome to come back. Thank you. I am looking forward, not this year, end of 2020, Christmas time, going into the bookshop and picking up that autobiography and hearing more. So that's the date I've got in for, end of 2020. Okay. I'll do what I can. <laughs> uh, good luck with all the artists. Thank you very much. And um, it was great to meet you a few weeks ago in London House. It's been fabulous having you here again See you today. again next year. Well, you absolutely Got well, for sure. Already. I, I'm sure we'll go out for a glass of wine before that. That's <laughs> really my promise indeed. to you. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank it is you. Brooklyn's Radio at the weekend. Thanks to John Glover. Mm-hmm.